Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson, I'm an economist here at Cambridge Judge Business School. In this series, specialists from the Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on industrial policy. Since the financial crisis and the Great Recession, there has been a re-evaluation of the role of public policy to increase growth and the standard of living. And as part of this re-evaluation, we have seen the re-emergence of industrial policy. Previously derided as by some as unhelpful government intervention and picking winners. Today's topic is what a modern industrial policy should look like. My guests today are first of all Alan Hughes. Alan is Professor of Innovation at Imperial College Business School and Distinguished Visiting Professor at Lancaster University Management School. He's also Margaret Thatcher Emeritus Professor of Enterprise Studies at the Cambridge Judge Business School and was the former Director of the Centre for Business Research at the University of Cambridge. Also joining me is Michael Pollitt. Michael is Professor of Business Economics and Director of the MPhil and Technology Policy Programme at Cambridge Judge Business School. So there have been major shifts in the global economy as the balance of economic activity shifts from west to east. Meanwhile, in many industrialised countries, productivity growth is sluggish, if not stagnant. Can industrial policy help to revive industrialised countries? And in particular, can it help the long-term challenges facing the UK, particularly now in terms of the challenges of Brexit? So really to kick off, I think I'd like to ask uh, the panellists is what do they think innovation policy is and what should a modern industrial policy look like? Alan? Well, I think it, in answering this question, it helps to step back a little bit and think about why it went out of fashion, why it's come back into fashion, and what it might mean now that it might not have meant in the past. And I think it goes right back to the financial crisis. Because in the aftermath of the financial crisis, there was a really important debate about the need to rebalance the economy. That is, there was a perception that the UK economy, the US economy, had become far too service dominated and service oriented, and that this made them less resilient and more fragile. And so initially, the reintroduction of industrial policy definitely had a structural focus. What I think we've seen happening is that as the memory of the recession has perhaps receded a bit, the structural arguments have been overcome by the usual arguments that were used to discredit industrial policy in the past. So what I would like to argue is that a modern industrial policy in the current situation in the UK, and I think in many other countries, needs clear structural elements. And it needs a strong manufacturing component too, because I believe the rebalancing argument to be an important one. I think we can then discuss what actually has changed since the 1970s, which pose a particular challenge for industrial policy now. Michael. Well, uh, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's important to remember where we've come from because, um, as Alan says, uh, industrial policy was discredited in the 1970s and it, it really was discredited. Um, we need Do you to, think it, it was correctly discredited? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think, you know, there were attempts through the 1960s to reorganise uh, UK industry in order to make it fit for international competition. Uh, we think of uh, General Electric Company, which reorganised the electrical um, equipment industry. We think of British Leyland, that great success story in, in, in uh, reorganising the British car industry. We think of attempts to create new companies like ICL, which was a, the British computer company. Um, those were unmitigated failures. Um, and actually what subsequently happened to 
the remnants of those companies was that it was only when um, they were taken into uh, foreign ownership um, that they received the capital that they needed, that they uh, got the innovative spirit that they needed, and that the people, the, the undoubted um, local skills which we had in the UK were actually released. And and that I think we do need to give credit to uh, Mrs. Thatcher's industrial policy, um, which was about um, promoting genuine private ownership in the UK and promoting overseas investment into the UK. And the, and the idea that we could ignore the fact that we were a small, open economy um, that had to compete uh, in, a, in a global environment um, was, uh, was one that Mrs Thatcher took seriously and actually it did lead to a recovery in the British economy. Do you think that that recovery was due to that policy change and not to financial deregulation and the credit boom that um, pre preceded the credit crisis? Well, I think I, you know, um, uh, the NIESR have looked at this, and I think their general conclusion... That's the National Institute of Economic and Social yeah, Research. Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, I remember when I was a student under Alan, um, you know, looking at the sorts of evidence that they were coming up with, and I think their conclusion on the reforms of Mrs Thatcher was it was a period during which the supply side of the British economy did improve, underlying productivity did improve relative to the rest of the G7, but it was masked by a general macroeconomic uh, failure. So in a sense, the, the economy didn't grow as rapidly as it might have done under a more Keynesian uh, economic stimulus, which promoted the underlying supply side improvements that we might have seen. Um, so it was a period which you might characterise where there was a lot of microeconomic success in the British economy, but perhaps the macroeconomics wasn't what it should have been. Alan, um, just your response to Michael's notion that, or argument that in the, the 60s and 70s, I think industrial policy, I think was a, a mitigated failure, I think was your, 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 your to quote you, Michael, and, and that we should give praise to Mrs Thatcher and her industrial policy. Well, as the Margaret Thatcher Professor Emeritus, <laughs> might, it might appear that I might be somewhat conflicted here. Now, I think that um, a discussion of what happened in the, in the 1980s, it's certainly the case there was a massive uh, retreat from all kinds of subsidies and uh, taxation uh, offsets. Um, but I think the story of what's happened to British industry, as opposed to the economy as a whole, is somewhat different. So um, just as it's possible to discredit a government intervention in the form of the Industrial Reorganisation Corporation or the history of GEC, private sector in the UK was an unmitigated disaster on its own. So the, uh, the IRC episode, for instance, took place pretty much at the same time as the biggest takeover wave in British history to that time. Most of these takeovers failed. And British industry has gone on doing that in successive waves ever since without really producing much in the way of their own reorganisation. One of the big side effects of um, the 1980s uh, was an acceleration in the rate at which British manufacturing sector declined. And that, I think, is a structural feature which led to long-run weaknesses. So throughout the period that's just been described, the UK ran persistent deficits in manufacturing. And I think this structurally does matter because unless you can trade effectively with other sectors of the economy, then you're always going to run the economy at a less high rate of activity than it could otherwise be done. So the Thatcher revolution undoubtedly undermined UK's manufacturing capacity. We may have ended up with a more efficient sector, but what was left was very small in relation to our trading requirements. And that's why financial services became so big 
and so important, and why the financial crash was so damaging. So, so is, is your argument that the manufacturing sector is important because of its contribution to trade? Yes. But, but, but since this period, we've had persistent balance of payments deficits, and they haven't seemed to matter. They mattered in the 60s and 70s, but we've had deficits since, since the early 1980s onwards. Well, they, they don't matter in the sense you have offsetting uh, issues which can you know, make up the difference. So we've had an energy bonus from the North Sea. That's not going to last forever. Um, we've had successful trading in services. Um, unless we can maintain our overall balance performance, we will suffer. So I think there is a good case for believing you have to have a view about manufacturing. And I was a member of the Foresight Programme for the Future of Manufacturing, and it spelled out a lot of important arguments as to why manufacturing matters. Even though employment in manufacturing is falling, it's a source of very high-skilled jobs, much higher skilled in the service sector. In some parts of the service In some sector. parts of the service sector. On average, I mean, wages yeah, are higher yeah. and skill levels are higher. Um, there will be, simply through people retiring, 30,000 to 40,000 new manufacturing jobs, um, which will have these characteristics. But most important is the arise of business models in which manufacturing per se plays only a part in the overall value generated by the business as a whole. And it's much more important to see the role of manufacturing in these value chains and the way you can capture the value from them than just to think about you know, how much manufacturing output there is in the UK. And that, that's the big challenge for industrial policy. Then we can come back and talk about yeah. that. M Michael, does, does manufacturing matter? Um, I think that we, you know, any industrial policy needs to recognise where the UK is in its, um, if you like, its, its life cycle of economic development. Um, I, I think, you know, we are a, uh, an advanced economy which had a very large manufacturing sector. Um, I think as economies get richer, their manufacturing sectors naturally decline in significance within, within the economy. And a lot of manufacturing does shift to other places in the world. You know, we're, there, you know, one of the things that worries me about a focus on manufacturing per se is that we just need to recognise the reality of the global world that we live in where we're not going to be able to compete with China or Vietnam for mass-produced manufacturing. And I completely agree with Alan that there may be high value bits of manufacturing that can stay in the UK, but we need to exploit our relative position in uh, our economic development, which would naturally suggest that we uh, deindustrialize and that we move into higher value added services sectors. Um, and of course, we don't want to, as happened in the early 1980s, go through accelerated declines. We want to manage decline in manufacturing. Um, but this is a, when you talk about decline, you're talking about relative decline as yeah, a share of GDP. Yeah, and in terms of total employment. And I think we need to remind ourselves that many parts of British industry, they were, you know, these jobs weren't that desirable. Um, uh, whereas modern service sector jobs are, you know, um, not, you know, are, are quite desirable, quite flexible, and, uh, you know, very safe. Um, uh, and there's a sort of nostalgia about many parts of manufacturing, which I don't think is justified by the evidence. Well, I think it's very important to remember that the level of manufacturing output in the UK recently has been the same as the level of output was in 1970. It's just that its share in the economy has gone down. Yeah. So it is a very, still a very substantial economic activity. The, the big shift in the way that business is organised in the 1970s as compared to now is this complete unbundling of value chains. 
So, um, and the underlying belief is that you can innovate and do everything you want here, and you can produce it for nothing in some far eastern location and be successful. And that really is the key issue in thinking about industrial policy now. Is that really true? And there's increasing evidence that it's not true. That in fact, in most of the high-end, highly innovative areas of, of manufacturing, there is a very important gain to the co-location of certain stages. Um, this might not always include production per se, but actually having ownership of the whole process is a key part of the success stories. Now, the examples that are often used do include manufacturing. So Rolls-Royce no longer sell the engines. So their business model is a one which is built around supplying the, the power that the engine gives, but making a huge amount of money on the servicing, which other, would otherwise have been done by other organizations. There are, there are plenty of other examples. The typhoons supplied to the Ministry of Defense are supplied on an availability basis. Um, they're not supplied as actual, well, they are supplied as actual aircraft, but the commitment in the contract is to supply a certain amount of activity. Bombardier repairs its, um, its railway rolling stock as part of a contract. So we have to think about how we can capture the value from these processes and to what extent the ones that really matter to be co-located are co-located in the UK. And what's the role of policy here? I mean, and, and when we talk about industrial policy, is the main initial focus on manufacturing or is it broader, as you suggest, in terms of the supply chain? Or should policy be, be addressed looking at services per se? What are the boundaries in terms of the, uh, what policy should be addressing? Is it manufacturing? Is it manufacturing supply chain? Is it services? 80% of the economy in the UK, for instance, is services. Well, it, it, I mean, it's worth um, saying in response to Alan. I mean, uh, I completely agree with the situation he's describing, but he's actually describing a very complicated uh, global supply chain, and that reveals the problem for policy. You know, the problem for policy is which bits of those uh, that that supply chain should we be encouraging in the UK? Identifying the sort of niche bits of the supply chain that the UK should concentrate on and achieve critical mass in, that's actually really difficult from a policy point of view. So while... Um, Is it best leaving it to the market? Well, then, so? I, th I, think, I, I think, you know, it's not um, just leaving it to the market because it is worth saying um, that although there were many failures in the 1970s, one of the successes of the 1970s was Rolls-Royce Aerospace was rescued um, by the government. Um, and uh, in a sense uh, saved from bankruptcy and then released back into the private sector. So clearly there is a role for targeted industrial policy where the external effects of the collapse of certain uh, key companies would be so great that it is worth making an attempt to save them if you think that um, the longer term prospects um, are pretty good. And of course, the UK had a long history in aerospace. It's a high value added manufacturing area. It's one where we already had critical mass. So, you know, with hindsight, that looked like a good um, save by the, by the state where the longer term growth prospects were pretty good. So that, you know, that's the sort of industrial policy which looks quite sensible. So this is about picking winners and when you pick a winner, well done. And when you pick a, a failure, yeah, but I, you know, I, I think if we look more carefully at the experience of the car industry, you know, the part, you know, is it, the car industry is a good contrast where actually the 
you know, the government was much less successful in reorganizing the state-owned British Leyland and releasing it back to the private sector. Huge amounts of money were absorbed in the late 1970s. And, you know, the British Leyland, if I remember what Alan taught me, was the biggest single sink for uh, industrial policy expenditure out of the whole of Britain, British industrial policy. Um, and, uh, you know, what actually should have happened to British Leyland was that in the 1960s, um, the UK government should have realised that actually selling some parts of the car industry off to German car manufacturers and the rising uh, power of Japan and Germany would have been the best thing for, for the British car industry, as it turned out to be in the 1980s. Um, so, you know, clearly intelligent industrial policy requires, um, you know, you to make good decisions about when to take things over in, in the state and keep them for a while and release them back, when to let foreign ownership take effect, uh, and when to just let things uh, run down. So I think that this complexity issue is a very important one, and it's, it's often used as an argument why the state can't do anything. Um, Martin Spring and I just had an article published in the Journal of Operations Management where we point out this is exactly the same problem that large corporations face, and that the lessons of modern industrial policy are the same for the operations management in large corporations, it's all about how do you organize supply chains, how do you choose, where do you go to locate. And the underlying issues are the same. And what I think a modern industrial policy uh, does is it recognizes, first of all, that you can't have this top-down dirigiste approach. So in deciding what to do about Rolls-Royce, for instance, um, you really needed to know what sectorally was possible, what technologically was possible, what the system was in which Rolls-Royce was embedded. And it was a very specific kind of rescue operation. I mean, nobody stood back and said, oh, the state shouldn't intervene to rescue all our banks. <laughs> they just waited in and did it. Well, probably some people did. Yes, um, I think but, they, but, were, they but, were drowned out. Yeah, they were drowned out. <laughs> but that's because if you don't rescue the banks, then the whole financial, the whole economic system suffers. I mean, that, there's, a, there's an argument for rescuing banks that is probably actually more systemic than there are for argument for rescuing motor car industries. Or you can make a systemic argument, but there were interventions before it became systemic, Northern Rock being an example. But it, it, it illustrates a general point about what, what role the state should play. All of those institutions, the financial institutions, were already embedded in a regulatory system in which they operated. So to that extent, they were already policy governed. And nearly everything we do in our economies has the state involved to some degree of regulation. Uh, so the, the, the key issue is, how do we decide how we should allocate scarce resources in an industrial policy? And that means you have to have some clear objectives up front. And if you, if you have stru structural objectives, you should say what they are. If you don't have them, you don't have to say them. One of the striking things that's occurred is we've had an industrial strategy announced, which in the end completely retreated from structural policies and doesn't talk about industrial policy very much at all partly because it isn't releasing very much extra funding. The, the one good thing about the industrial strategy is that it's actually committing more money to research at the beginning of the process. But the key question is, will we capture the value that's created by that research, or will it all be embodied in new Samsung TVs or medical equipment supplied from Taiwan or wherever it is? And that's the big issue about where the state should be involved. And a much better way of thinking about these problems is to think from the point of view of systems thinking. That is, you identify what the system is, whether it's a, a sectoral system 
or a technological system or a regional system. You identify some boundaries within which you can operate and then you think about how that system is working. What currently is the role of the state? What kind of competitive strengths do the firms have in that sector? Is it something that we might be able to make a big mark um, in the world with, in, a, in a trading sense? Now, most of the answers to those questions are embedded in the industries, the sectors, the firms themselves. So you have to have a policy um, which actually tries to draw on the knowledge that's embedded in the, in the sectors or the particular technologies and then craft policies around them. And there are all kinds of interventions that are possible. Demonstrator plants, which the state supports to indicate a new technology can be applied in urban traffic systems or whatever. That's a very you know, sensible kind of industrial policy, but it's not the kind of thing that people think about. So the big lessons, I think, are, first of all, think from a systemic point of view, decide what it is you're looking at, understand how that system works, understand what difficulties, if any, there are, which are system failures, not failures in markets alone, but how people interact, how scientists communicate with you know, industry, and then see if you can address that with a particular policy initiative. And that's going to be very granular and specific, um, but that's the way it'll have to work. It's quite information intensive, um, but that's the way modern industrial policy works. One of the striking things is that whereas industrial policy retreated completely in the industrial economies, it never retreated in the developing world. And so there are many examples and very good thinking about the evolution of industrial policy arose from uh, countries developing their, their economies with a strong industrial policy base. I mean, you're both distinguished economists, but economists don't tend to think about systems, they think about markets. Uh, is that a challenge? Michael, do, do, you, do you think about the problems of the British economic system or do you think in terms of markets? Um, I, I think I do tend to think in terms of markets, but uh, I think what um, you know, an economist might, one of the sort of market reactions to what Alan has been saying is we, we shouldn't neglect economic geography um, and the, the lessons of economic geography and the lessons of economic geography tell us about the importance of uh, scale and scope um, in economic activity and the fact is that certain regions of the world or uh, regions within a country have particular critical mass in particular sorts of skills or history of uh, certain large companies where in a sense you are getting agglomeration benefits which you should exploit. So you know the City of London would be a great example in, 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 in the UK or you know the area around Coventry and Derby for, uh, for aerospace and, and, and cars. Um, and in a sense we need to work with the economic geography that we've been given. Um, and the UK has considerable uh, advantages in some of its economic geography. And we but, but, but massive regional imbalances. I mean, London is shooting ahead on most metrics, GVA per capita and other metrics of performance. And, you know, clearly one of the uh, aspects of the government's industrial strategy is not just about efficiency. And, you know, it, would be, it might be good for... Uh, total GDP and GDP per head in the UK to concentrate everything around the south of London, uh, southeast in London. Um, but clearly, for distributional reasons, we do want to try and shift industry um, away from London, um, and that's a perfectly legitimate aim of industrial strategy. Is it's also about distribution. Um, of economic activity. It's not just about aggregate efficiency. Uh, the scale arguments, I think, in terms of production, 
and scale in terms of non-financial issues are a very small part of explaining the industrial structure of firms as we see them. I mean, it's never been shown that economies scale in production while we've got big firms. <laughs> we could never explain the distribution of firms by scale economies. But the, the idea that there are important, what you might call external economies or agglomeration effects is a very important one. It goes back to Marshall. It goes right back to Marshall. And then the key issue is whether these agglomeration effects are something the government can play a role in creating, uh, understanding how they're generated, and what role they can play in the relocation of industry. Because firms do relocate their plants, multinational corporations in particular do it. And so understanding those location decisions is, is very important, which is why I was mentioned right at the beginning, uh, this discussion of what it is that makes it important to co-locate things. So at one level, you know, a place, a place can be attractive for people to live um, and work. And so there's a whole lot of stuff you can do about transport systems, about the kind of houses you build, and the transport system that go with it, like Cambridge is a good example, it's being strangled by its success. It's going to require a lot of infrastructure investment to really release its full potential, and that applies to other, other areas too. So there are those um, infrastructural aspects. But then there are activities which it does turn out to be important to co-locate together. And there are plenty of examples of this now, from looking at the American uh, high-tech industries, um, and looking at a, a number of things. If it, if it matters a lot, that you have to have a lot of iteration between the design process and the research process and production, then it's often extremely efficient to have that you know, co-located. Um, if there are important uh, things that you can't easily specify in contracts, then you've got to do it much more informally Then there are good reasons for having it close together. You can't just send a, you know, a list of the things that have to be done clearly specified. And there are some sectors which are more characterized by those than others, where you could have some kind of locational intervention. But a lot of work being done in the United States now, for instance, about relocating textile and garment production in the United States, because it's now technically efficient to program plants to have their phase production, satisfying things which are local to the market, fast fashion, quick turnaround, which you can reconfigure part of your plant to do, whilst putting offshore all the standard stuff. Who'd have thought that the US would be onshoring its cotton textile industry, but it's happening. Well, actually, and actually, all the standard stuff may come yeah. back with with um, new technology and robotics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, 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 but that, from what you're both arguing, that, that creates a, a regional challenge because if there are powers of agglomeration, then those areas that don't have the strengths may actually find regional imbalances um, widening. And actually, although we may have different views about the success of industrial policy from the 1980s, one one definite um, result has been a widening regional disparities in the UK. Um, yeah, persistently, but, the London has been accelerating yeah. ahead, and, and other regions have not. On most economic metrics, I may add. But I, I, I mean, I think there are lessons, aren't there? I mean, I think um, that certain parts of the UK have been very successful. You know, one thinks of you know Scotland as a whole um, is at the UK average, um, and that is something about the fact that uh, certainly the Central Belt in Scotland um, has got uh, you know. Ha has got critical mass. Oil helps as well. Yeah, uh, well, and, and also, you know, the, 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 the sort of ease of travel and the investment that's been made in Scottish universities. So, you know, it, it clearly is possible to have very intelligent um, uh, government support policies which do uh, create critical mass in certain areas. Or, uh, um, and I think that is something very much to, to be encouraged. Can, can I just ask about what sorts of interventions you think might be appropriate? I mean, there's a 
There's a crude distinction sometimes between vertical and horizontal integrations, vertical focusing on specific sectors or specific industries and horizontal focusing much more on areas that cut across industries and sectors, be it support for training, support for education, R&D, infrastructure and so on. I mean, do you think that distinction is useful? And if it's useful, which ones would you advocate? I think it's a useful distinction, but it's not in the end terribly helpful because it's very difficult to think of a horizontal policy that doesn't have more benefit for some sectors than, than for others. It follows from the general position I'm taking here that I don't think I can tell you what the right industrial policy is for anything. But if you come to me and say, I would like to do something for the Northwest, and the Northwest has British aerospace, um, and we, we'd like to do something about raising value added per head in the Northwest, then I could engage in some discussion about what that, what that would involve. Uh, so I don't think there's, you know, yes, we should do this, no, we shouldn't do that. We've got to understand the specific problem in a particular location and try and address it. I mean, it is, it is the most important question in industrial policy at the moment. So the industrial strategy has made this statement that it wants things to be more evenly spread or the whole economy has got to rise together. And there's now a huge amount of effort being expended to try and identify what a place-based industrial policy or innovation policy would look like. And that involves all sorts of really straightforward questions. What do you mean by place? Are we talking about regions? Are we talking about cities? Are we talking about groups of cities? Uh, and if so, what then happens to the current allocation of resources? Now, when you look at the current allocation of resources, if you take the research and, uh, expenditure funding, it's as massively unequally spread <laughs> as industrial activity. Not quite, because um, a lot of it is associated with manufacturing activity. And manufacturing activity is not dominated by the southeast and London. You know, it's the Midlands and Northwest. Um, and so they do have quite a lot of research and development uh, to build on. So we start from a, a very unequal distribution of the underlying resource budgets for research and for innovation. And if there's going to be a substantial structural shift regionally, that implies reallocating that, that money on a quite substantial scale. Would that help regional um, imbalances? Well, I think if it, if it goes with job generation um, and the capture of the value locally, I think the answer is yes. But you know, to produce um, a major investment in a science-based activity in the Northwest, which then isn't captured or invested in by British firms or firms in the Northwest, does no credit to the UK or to the Northwest. Michael. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that um, we need to learn from the success of successful sectors in the UK. Um, you know, and, and why they're successful. So, you know, why is the Southeast so successful in the UK? It, one reason is because it's a, an interconnected single travel to work area of about 30 million people. So it's got incredible critical Many mass. commuters wouldn't agree with yeah. you, but let's yeah, just take but, that for you know, But let's, you know, let's, you know, so that is, so basically what that means is, you know, I can, I can locate in that area and I know that I can easily switch jobs, I can switch sectors, I can, I can move around the economy um, quite easily. What we need to do um, is create another area like that in the UK. So that suggests that you know, the Northern Powerhouse idea is a great idea. So something around Manchester, Liverpool, increasing the travel to work area there, achieving critical mass around that. That immediately suggests that some elements of industrial policy are better than others, you know. Um, so if you were going to spend, as we are going to spend, £50 billion on HS2, 
which connects those northern areas to London, that money would be far better spent within um, the northern powerhouse area to try and improve the transport links within the area rather than to simply make um, the northern powerhouse area a suburb of London or certain bits of it. Um, so, you know, what one would always say is, as an economist is, whatever money we're going to spend on industrial policy, let's spend it wisely. You know, the, the idea that we ended up spending most of our industrial policy budget on British Leyland rather than um, selling it to German and Japanese uh, companies, that was clearly not a sensible use of the money that we were putting into industrial policy. The idea that, we're, that our current industrial policy might be around one very large real infrastructure investment, which is a big waste of money, while we're not doing much smaller, more sensible projects, which would have bigger payoffs. And we've also been delaying obvious investments like extra runway capacity in the southeast of England. You know, the, these, these are the things that where economists want to pull their hair out. You know, uh, you know we, money is available for vanity projects, but it's not available for things that would clearly pay off for UK PLC. Can I just focus down on one aspect of industrial policy or one area that's related to industrial policy, and that's innovation policy. Um, we see a lot of focus now on innovation as the way to solve various productivity problems, productivity gaps, the productivity slowdowns at the financial crisis. Um, what should an innovation policy look like? At the moment, we've got a focus on R&D and R&D target. We've got R&D tax credits. Um, we've got a focus on focus on, on the science and technology to deal with place-based imbalances. Um, what does an innovation, what does a modern innovation policy look like? I know, again, there's no clear answers here, but what sort of what, what sort of um, path or direction should we be going on in, going in in terms of industrial poli innovation policy? Well, I think it's it's worthwhile again stepping back and saying that what happened to industrial policy was it disappeared, and it was replaced by entrepreneurship policy, which I would argue has been largely a waste of money. Um, and subject for another time, perhaps. Uh, we need a and, much longer <laughs> podcast on that one. And innovation policy. And the evidence on innovation policy uh, from the 1980s onwards is actually quite good. So um, although there's a lot of discussion about R&D and R&D tax credits, that's only a small part of the overall configuration of innovation policy. So if you think of the innovation process as something that starts with some scientific research, either done in the public or the private sector, um, and which produces you know, new knowledge of various kinds, um, there's quite a long process before that actually gets into a product or a process and actually directly affects um, you know, real activity in the economy. And we have parts of our innovation policy address each, each of these things. And a lot of it's been quite good, so uh, and it has a very strong systems-based focus. So for instance, if you think of things like um, the knowledge transfer program, uh, knowledge exchange schemes in which people from university, students at universities doing PhDs and master's courses are seconded to firms and solve you know, real technical problems. That turns out to be very successful. The firms like it, the individuals like it, you produce people who are willing to work in uh, smaller businesses. Um, the general policy of encouraging intermediate organizations in the system to try and help this transition process um, produce, for instance, the Catapult program, I think it's not clear that they're going to work fully, but they haven't really been evaluated properly. They haven't been running long enough, but the idea is an attractive one. And if you go and say visit the, the ones in which Rolls-Royce are involved in, in uh, Derby and Sheffield, those areas, they're, they're doing a very good job in integrating 
education system, skills training, and the implementation of innovation. And so you need, you need the full spectrum of those things. The R&D tax credit and R&D emphasis is probably not the right emphasis. Um, we have a massively concentrated R&D effort in a handful of firms. And I'll have three or four firms account for 70 to 80% of all our R&D. Um, and I think they regarded the patent box as a Christmas. Um, it's hugely, hugely expensive and led to, um, I think, a lot of legal uh, manoeuvring to make sure that your patent activity counted for the, um, the tax subsidy. Michael, you're, you're, you're director of the MPhil and Technology Policy and you're also assistant director of the Energy Policy Research Group, so you must have well-developed views on what an innovation policy should look like. Um, I, I mean, I agree with Alan that it's very, it's very difficult to know what uh, uh, you know, a good innovation policy looks like. I think one, what one would say is that, um, you know, energy is a great example of uh, both failures and successes in, 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 in innovation policy. For years, we pumped money into nuclear research. Nuclear research was by far the biggest component of um, research expenditure um, by the government on energy. Um, um, it, was, it was clearly a waste of money. Um, because we did, you know, we haven't been developing our nuclear program to the extent that everybody thought might be the case. Whereas more recently, we've had some uh, successes with uh, costs coming down in the offshore wind industry. Um, a lot of success in in one program that I'm familiar with, where the uh, energy regulator Ofgem allowed um, network companies to raise up to two and a half percent of their um, their revenue for innovation projects. Those innovation projects had to be about um, near uh, market activities and they had to produce value for consumers. Um, recently, Ofgem evaluated the initial wave of those projects and found that they were producing benefits to the economy of four or five times the amount of money that was being put into them. So where there's sort of pent up demand for innovation and people can clearly identify a benefit from a push on innovation and where that innovation expenditure is being competitively awarded and subject to some sort of market testing and proper peer review, well, clearly there can be benefits. Um, and and um, you know, there are some good lessons to be learned from the energy sector for other sectors. There's something generally about this question of uh, policy design and evaluation. The, the first thing that's going to be true of innovation policy is most of the time it's not going to work. So if you take the SMART scheme, the SMART scheme is a small firm's merit award for research and technology. It gave grants, matching grants to firms to do R&D. Um, and it could be phased, you could do a staged process. When I was involved in evaluating, and there's been others have evaluated this program, 80% of the value created was created by something like 10 to 15% of the firms who got the award. And that's fine. As long as you know, it, it's acceptable politically to have a policy in this highly risky area of innovation which recognises that you're going to have failures. Isn't that the biggest challenge, though, for policymakers well, to accept that most yes, policies are going to fail? It is. It's a big, big policy challenge. But there's an, an important area of policy design which we haven't really touched on, but is very important. And that is thinking about policy as an option. That is, you're placing a bet. And what you have to have is the ability to decide you're going to follow on success with more bets or you're going to cut your losses. 
So you have an, have an option designed a policy that you say, okay, we're going we're to advance this amount of funding to do this kind of experimental work. And if it, if it succeeds, then we'll put more money in. If it doesn't, we will withdraw. Now, having that flexibility in policy is very important. It's politically difficult because once you set out on a route of subsidising, you then, you've then got to stop it. But it's critically important. And it goes along with a mantra that I've used a lot in trying to get rid of this legacy of the 1970s is you have to think of policy not as picking winners, but about placing bets. So you've got to think of the government as a venture capitalist in this respect. They've got to, they've got to put money into a risky area and they've got to accept that most of the time it won't work, but some of the times it will and it'll pay off big. And then you've got to be able to get out of things that are uh, going in the wrong direction. Michael, your view of that, that would, that would be a big challenge for the mindset of many policymakers to think that they are. Well, I, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, it, it sounds great. And I, you know, I, I love the idea of placing um, bets. Um, and I think one thing that Alan's just said is very important. We need to be able to get out of uh, expenditure. One of the lessons from the 1970s was that, you know, we, that the government kept being told this will pay off. You know, if we keep investing in the, the British car industry, if we keep investing in the British computer industry, you know, eventually it will pay off. If we keep investing in clean coal, if we keep investing in nuclear uh, fusion and fission, it'll pay off. You know, sometimes it might have done, Michael, but we have. Well, you know, we have, we have, it takes a long as, time to measure and a long time to track some of those. As Ke- uh, you know, as Keynes did say, um, you know, in the long run, we're all dead. And Bar we, children aren't. we need to we need we need to realise that um, you know we can't wait forever for uh, some of these bets to pay off, um, and it's, and I think it's especially true in um, the world that we live in. You know, maybe there are more bets that we can place, and the bets should be smaller than they were in the past. Um, we shouldn't bet you know fifty percent of the house on one um, on one company. Um, and which is what we were doing in the past. Can I just ask, conscious of the time, I'm just going to ask one last topic, and it relates to innovation policy, and it relates to the issue about the role of universities in innovation policy. There's been a lot of focus on universities in terms of their success in terms of research, success in terms of teaching, and now there's a big impact agenda. They must have an impact, and part of that is universities are tasked with improving innovation performance, technology transfer, and economic growth. How, how do we see the, the role of universities and how they fit into this innovation policy framework? Whenever I talk about this, I, the, my first slide has the title, Keeping a Sense of Perspective. <laughs> and it just reminds us all that if you ask companies what their main source of information and knowledge is for their innovation activities, and other people are gonna do it, universities are way down the list. It's other firms, suppliers, customers, people in the supply chain. But that's not a surprise. How many, how many firms but, are there in the UK and how many academics? Oh, there are about 150,000 academics and several million firms, firms if you yeah, count all yeah, the ones yeah, that yeah. employ like yeah. two people or no people. Yeah. Um, so th- this is a, an important point to bear in mind. So what universities do in some areas is very important um, in terms of supplying specific pieces of um, social science as well as natural science knowledge. but. The other side of this coin is that the main contribution we make is actually by educating large numbers of highly talented people. And uh, these people go out and if they get, if they get jobs, they're capable of you know, making a substantial contribution to GDP and value added and socioeconomic welfare. But in terms of what universities can do, highly trained, um, skilled individuals, 
contributions across the range of the social sciences and the natural sciences which can inform the way businesses operate, think, organize themselves and technologically innovate. But it's part of, it's part of an overall system which is a small part. So making that part work has been an important part of innovation policy and things like knowledge transfer networks, smart programs, collaborative R&D programs, these have all been evaluated and usually have, have, have um, well, nearly all have been found to be positive in their impact. So they are, the universities are a successful part of our innovation system? They are system. a part of the innovation system, yeah. Michael, your view on the role of universities, can they, be, can they do more? Oh, well, undoubtedly we can do more. And I think it's worth point, pointing out that uh, certainly all of the grand challenges that the government have set um, uh, for their current industrial strategy are areas where... Could you the, tell us about the grand challenges? Well, you know, the, 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 um, the government set four grand challenge areas, um, that which are artificial intelligence and data, future of mobility, clean growth and an ageing society. Those are all areas where, in a sense, there's very close interaction with universities. You know, you, you know the use of artificial intelligence draws very closely on computer science. The future of mobility is at the centre of engineering. Clean, clean growth involves all sorts of environmental sciences. Ageing society is about, you know, the health service and, 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 and medical science. So, you know, I, I observe that actually increasingly we live in a world where um, many of the people that we deal with in industry and in government are very well educated themselves. Um, you know, that's one of the things that's changing over time. They're very familiar with academic argument and they're also uh, very keen to, to learn from academics. You know, at University uh, of Cambridge, we've got the Centre for Science and Policy, which is a great sort of forum for interacting between policymakers and the university, where you know policymakers are always on the lookout for new ideas to to, to bring into to policy. Um, and the other thing that I observe that uh, is happening certainly at Cambridge as Business School is that we are very keen on um, helping our students um, set up their own businesses. And you know, and I think one of the things that I think has changed very much at the University of Cambridge is that we place a much greater emphasis in trying to encourage our students to set up businesses at following being at university. Um, you know, and I, and I think uh, one of the things that's given me most pleasure recently has been some of the students on the MBA who have set up their own energy company, um, Cambridge Energy Partners. Um, and that, you know, that's the direct result of the sorts of things they learned at university and going out and wanting to set up a business on the back of it. Good. Thank you very much for the discussion today. Particularly thank uh, Professor Alan Hughes and Professor Michael Pollitt who joined me for today for in today's discussion. I think we've ranged over um, a wide range of issues uh, and we've got some future topics for future discussion including the, the role of universities and particularly I think the, the success and failure of enterprise policy. Um, these are issues that we will hopefully consider in future podcasts. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can follow us at the Cambridge Judge Business Schools website. You can also see us on Twitter at the Cambridge Judge Business Schools Twitter feed, which is at CambridgeJBS. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can join us next time. <laughs>